Good morning. My name is Ardellis Green. We can open up to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be in there in just a moment. That was Tim Hampton, one of our elders, and um, I love Tim very much. And one of the things that Tim will do is he'll text me saying, how can I pray for you? And I think about his passion for prayer and our passion to pray for our country. And we'll conclude our service also with an invitation to pray. Some of you, I'm aware as I stand here in front of you that there's many different needs within the body. Some of you need joy. The busyness of life, perhaps the burdens of life, are creating within your heart heaviness, and you're longing for a deep sense of abiding joy greater than the circumstances you're facing in your life. Some of you need peace. You're in the middle of making a decision. You're not quite sure which way to go with the decision. It may pertain to your marriage or your life or your career, but uh, there's turmoil inside of you. Some of you here need comfort. You're in the middle of conflict. Conflict can be very distressing. Maybe you're in the middle of cancer. Maybe you're in the middle of grief, a serious loss. You need comfort. Some of you need love. We all need love. But you find yourself alone and you're craving love, really feeling loved in your life. Some of you need strength. You're at the end of yourself. It seems dark, kind of the shades are down, right? You just need strength. You're looking for the strength to go on. Your only hope for joy and your only hope for peace and your only hope for comfort, your only hope for love and your only hope for strength is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. A place where there was a brutal, bloody, humiliating death of a man on a wooden post. Now, some would think that's very strange in the world that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And many leave this focus of clinging tightly to the cross. So I want to speak to Christians largely this morning because you might have drifted a bit. And that's what the concern in Hebrews 2 is, is drifting away from your focus upon Jesus and the cross. You may have lost your wonder of the cross. You may have lost the centrality of the cross because we all have this tendency to drift away and become focused on other things. Okay? So Christianity will take us back to the cross. See, the book of Hebrews was written to believers <clears throat> and they'd gotten off to a great start, but now they had, they'd heard the gospel, they had made their profession of faith, but life for them got hard. Some of their friends were beginning to stop following Jesus. Other friends and family had experienced suffering and persecution. They began to feel the pull of temptation, and they started to have their doubts and their questions. So we come talking about the cross. Maybe this day the Spirit will open to your eyes the beauty of the cross. Maybe you'll begin to see the wonder of the cross. They begin to feel just a little bit of the weight of the cross. So I wanted to talk for a moment about the cross. The cross is, represents God's predetermined affection for you. <laughs> Before he created the world, he set his affections upon you. He chose you. One of the pictures we have in Scripture is of God calling his people, of God choosing his people. 
We read in Corinthians, it says that the cross to them that are perishing is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power and the wisdom of God. So it seems to categorize two groups of people. First one is people that are perishing. The cross seems absurd. That God would become a man? Muslims say that's absurd. That's ridiculous. That God would be crucified on a cross? You know, we wear crosses, you know, around our necks, right? We have crosses on our churches. Crosses are very familial to us. But in their day, it would be sort of like having an electric chair around your neck. It was the place of execution. You see, only the slaves and the barbarians were crucified. To a Jew, the cross would symbolize on a tree, would a curse. Cursed is he who hangs upon a tree. It became a stumbling block to Jews. It became foolishness to the Gentiles. You know, you take any American family, any average American family, describe them to me. You know, they live in a comfortable home in the city, the suburbs, maybe the country. They have a SUV, a minivan. They have plenty of food on the table, right? They dress pretty well. They can afford a vacation. And you take them to a back alley and you show them a naked man hanging on a cross. And you say your only hope is to believe in that Messiah. Your eternity depends on what you say about that Messiah. They may laugh in your face. They may roll their eyes. You see, to the cross, to the believer, it evokes wonder and awe. The cross to us is beautiful. So why to one group does the cross seem so absurd and to another group, it seems so beautiful. Well, to the first group, it seems as if the cross is folly. But to us who are being saved, the cross is forgiveness for our sins. And if we are saved, it's only because of the sovereign mercy, the sovereign grace of God. God begins to open our eyes to the power of the cross. You see, before the sun was made, before the stars were placed in the sky, before the mountains were made, before the oceans were formed, God Almighty set his affections upon you and called you by name to be his child. The cross opens our eyes to see the affections of the Almighty towards us. And secondly, the cross demonstrates the love of God, his substitution for you. If I were to say to you this morning, are you saved? What would be your answer? How do you know that you're saved? If your answer began with, I, <laughs> I prayed a prayer somewhere, <laughs> I raised my hand somewhere, I walked the aisle somewhere, you might be relying upon yourself for something you have done. But if your answer begins with, God showed me mercy, God gave me grace, God took my place upon a cross, perhaps you have saving faith. You see, God, being rich in mercy, sent his son to 
bear the wrath of God and become our substitute. On the cross, Christ took all the wrath that I deserved and you deserved and became a substitute for you and I. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment we deserved fell upon him. By his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. But the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all onto him, onto Jesus. It pleased the Lord to crush him. The cross was a crushing experience for Christ. You know, when my wife Debbie and I got married, it was really a great day. I really don't feel like I deserved her. But uh, Debbie, Debbie and I, we gave everything we have to each other. Debbie brought into the marriage a 1975 Maverick, rusty, and a little bit of money. And I gave her everything I had, which was sort of an old beat-up Ford. And um, everything that was mine became hers, and everything of hers became mine. But in a more significant way, when you believe the cross, Everything of God's become yours. You become his. You become joined together, united, part of the same family. It's a beautiful thing to talk about the cross. So with that introduction, let's look together at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 5. We're taking this word by word and line by line, and if you need a Bible, there's some here, and if you don't have a Bible... You can take that's our gift to you. Remember, there's two ways to Hebrews, the hard way beginning at the beginning, the fast way beginning at the back, maybe the easier way with your mobile device. But here we go. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. <clears throat> it reads like this. It's not to the angels. Remember, Jesus is greater than the angels. He subjected the world to come. Jesus is going to rule about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. Question. Is the writer of Hebrews having a senior moment? He's saying there's somewhere someone has testified. Is he just forgetful of the verse? In fact, if you can't remember where the verse is, you can remember Hebrews 2.6 because it says somewhere he's testified. Little joke. You didn't get it. <laughs> so he's going to quote now. He's going to quote now from, Hebrew, from the book of Psalm. This is what he says. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. This is a psalm that David would have written under a starry night, perhaps, looking up at the sun, the moon, the stars and questioning the significance of man. Remember, our solar system has a diameter of some 7.5 billion miles the diameter of our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, is some 600 trillion miles. Within our galaxy is now about 100 billion stars. And in the universe, there's about 100 billion galaxies. When I consider the sun, the moon, the stars, the work of your fingers, he asked the question, what is man? Is man insignificant to you? Are we important to you? 
One of our elders, Amir, we were talking this week, and he said, he said to God, God, I'm always thinking of you. And the whisper of the Spirit was, but I'm thinking of you more. As much as you would think of God, God thinks of you more. He is always mindful of you and cares about you. You see, the things that matter to you matter to God. And I'll tell you something more about God's original intention. God created you, a man, to have dominion over the earth. Men and women were designed to rule under God's rulership. The exaltation of man was that we were placed here upon this earth underneath the angels but crowned with glory and honor. God gave us authority over all things. But perhaps in one of the great understatements in all of scriptures, it says this, verse 8, do you see it? Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. Would you agree that not everything is subject to you? If you don't agree, when you call a cat, does the cat come? You say, here, kitty, kitty. How often does a cat come when you call for your cat? Does your dog ever disobey you? Well, of course, because not all things are subject to your authority. We're living in a fallen world. When you go fishing, do the fish jump on the hook? Here, fishy, fishy, come. You see, what he's saying is something has turned in God's original design. Not all things are subject to our authority. But then we turn to verse 9, and it says, But we see Jesus. Oh, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, we might, he might taste death for everyone. If you keep taking notes in the bulletin, we got some fill-ins for you today. The first one is, we see Jesus, our Savior, who suffered death for us. This is the first time in the book of Hebrews the name of Jesus appears. And remember when the angel said to Joseph, you shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There is physical sight, and perhaps some of them had seen Jesus literally suffer upon the cross. But I think the reference here is to spiritual sight of the Spirit illuminating to us the person of Jesus. We begin to see Jesus, that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. All of eternity, Jesus had been above the angels. The angels surround the throne of God, and the angels love the King of heaven. And from his throne, he sends forth the angels on their mission. Man in his exaltation was made a little lower than the angels, but Jesus in his humiliation was made a little lower than the angels. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor. Jesus, who being in very nature God, Philippians says, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So he made himself nothing. He took on the appearance of a man and becoming obedient even to the point of death, the death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, 
Every knee should bow. He has now been crowned with glory and honor. We read in Revelation that the elders around the throne of God take their crowns from their heads and lay them at the feet of Jesus and say these words, You are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor. You see, first would come for Jesus the suffering, and second would come the crown. Upon this earth, he would experience dishonor, but from the Father, he would receive honor. First would come the gore, and then next would come the glory. You like that? I made that up. The gore and the glory. So why, why was he crowned in heaven with glory and honor? Because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see, God had made a boundary in the beginning, a law. Adam and Eve crossed that boundary. And God said, in the day you eat of the fruit, the forbidden fruit, you will surely die. And death came into the world. And so the sinless one, Jesus, did not sin. He was born of a virgin and did not sin. The innocent one died for sinners. The uncorrupted one died for the corrupt. The pure died for the impure. The law of God broken by man was kept by Jesus. And the justice of God required a penalty for breaking that law. And Jesus paid the penalty. Jesus satisfied the justice of God. Jesus propitiated the wrath of God. Jesus demonstrated the grace of God. You see, Jesus suffered death. And that death for him was excruciating. Crucifixions were often drawn out of fairs, lasting many hours, sometimes days, often preceded with scourgings and culminated with the breaking of one's legs so the person could not push up to get air. We see Jesus high and lifted up on a cross because there the grace of God is being poured out and the love of God being stretched out to all mankind. The first picture is of our Savior, whose name is Jesus. The second picture is of our captain, who went first, providing a path for us, verse 10. It says this, in bringing many sons to glory. You see, this is why he went to the cross. The suffering would be first, the glory would be second. His intention is to bring us with him to glory. In bringing many sons to glory... It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of our salvation perfect through suffering. The word, therefore, author, is we can translate captain or trailblazer. It refers to one who has origins, right? The one who writes the book is the author. He initiates the book. The one who founds the city is the founder of the city. The one who uh, starts the family is the originator of the family. He's the author, you see. A captain is one who goes in front of us and provides the example. He's the one who encourages the troop, and Jesus encourages us. And the captain rewards his troops. Jesus, our captain, went first, providing a path for us. The captain was not afraid of the battle, 
because he went first, providing salvation. The battle for him was not easy, and it won't be easy for us either. But if we follow the author of our salvation, he will lead us to glory. It's a beautiful thing that Jesus is the author of our salvation. But there's the third picture here that I want you to see, and that is that he is our brother, verse 11. He is our brother who isn't ashamed of us. I asked you last week to be reading Hebrews and find the person that God is not ashamed of. And you know who he's not ashamed of? He's not ashamed of you. It says in verse 11, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers. Since we have been justified by faith, to be justified means just as if I've never sinned. Jesus took your sins, my sins upon himself, and then he put something to your account, righteousness. It is called the great exchange. Now my identity, your identity, is not associated with your sin because you have been crucified with Christ, you have been buried with Christ, and you have been raised with Christ. I am in him, and he is in me. The Father does not see me as a sinner. He does not see you as a sinner. He sees you with the righteousness of Christ. Aren't you glad? And we are part now of God's incredible family. Do you have somebody in your family you're slightly ashamed of? A weird uncle? A brother who's made some mistakes? A sister who keeps making the same mistakes? Somebody in your family behind bars? You know, you're ashamed of somebody when you don't want to be associated with them. You always want to keep distance from them, right? Now, you might think because of what you have done that God would be ashamed of you. God would want to be associated with you, that God would want to keep distance from you. But Jesus says that you are my brother and you are my sister. You are my family. You know, shame is an amazing thing. And I think we sometimes feel shame for where we grew up. We don't want to talk about where we grew up or the home we grew up in. We feel shame about what we did, right? Sometimes we feel shame about our body size. We feel shame about the debt we have or the mistakes we have made. But do you know that when Jesus died upon the cross, he took upon your shame. He was naked in a very shameful place to absorb your shame. Your shame has been transferred from you to him. One of his disciples would betray him. Another disciple would deny him. Ten would run from him. The crowd asked Barabbas to be released instead of him. So the question is, why did Jesus go to the cross? Part of the answer is to absorb your shame. He is not ashamed of you. He identifies with you. To prove it, he begins to quote some Old Testament passages. You see him? I will declare your name to my brothers. Because of his deep love for you, 
He will proclaim his name to you, that his name is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. I will proclaim his name, Jehovah Shalom, the God who gives peace. I will proclaim his name, Jehovah Nisi, the God who sees. I will proclaim his name, Jehovah Sadiq, the God who is righteous. I will proclaim his name to my brothers. We are brothers and sisters and part of Jesus' family. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. God has so filled me with joy that I will sing praise to his name for his goodness. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praise. (laughs) What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. See, I will sing his praise in the midst of the congregation. I will put my trust in him. You know, a long time ago, I met an old saint, and she said, there's only one verse you really have to learn in the Bible. I said, the Bible's a big book. She said, no, no, there's only one verse you really have to learn. And when you understand this verse, you'll understand all the rest of the Bible. And I said, now you've got my attention. I said, what's the verse? She said, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. You know that Jesus walked this earth trusting in his Father's care for him? You know, the only place we find Jesus sleeping in all the scripture, he was sleeping in a boat in the midst of a storm because he knew his Father was going to take care of him. And what enables us to rest in the midst of the storm is that our Father is taking care of us. We see Jesus, our brother, not ashamed of us. And then we see something else. We see our conquering king. Do you see it in verse 14? Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. You see, because God's children have flesh and blood, flesh and blood is a euphemism for humanity. Jesus, when he asked his disciples, he said, who do, who do you say that I am? And Peter got it right. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Humanity, this was not given from a man. Because God's children have flesh and blood, because you have flesh and blood, the son of God stepped into humanity. He became flesh and blood. The Christmas story is about the incarnation, about God becoming flesh. So why was he born? Good question. Read on. It says that he, he, he too shared their humanity so that by his death, for only as a human being could Jesus die. It is impossible for God to die. You see, God has always been, God is, and God forever will be. So the only way that Jesus could die for humans would be to become a human. His divinity was tied to his humanity so that in his humanity he could pay the price for all humanity. Why was it necessary for him to die? Jesus, the conquering king, conquered our enemy. 
The first enemy he conquered on the cross was the enemy called sin. Jesus never lied, but on the cross he became a liar to die for the liar's sin. Jesus had never stolen, but on the cross he became a thief to die for the thief's sin. Jesus had never committed adultery, but on the cross he became an adulterer to die for the adulterer's sin. Jesus had never murdered, but on the cross he became a murderer in order to die for the murderer's sin. So the first huge enemy that Jesus conquered was called was sin. The second enemy he conquered, namely the devil. The main weapon in the devil's arsenal is accusation. He makes accusations against the brethren both day and night. That has to do with the fact that when we sin, when sin came in the world, also came death. The enemy's ploy toward us then is to fear death, to fear the judgment of God. You ever notice as people get a little older, they get more religious? They start attending mass more or coming more services because they're a little more worried, a little closer, you know. The reports aren't that great from the doctor. Maybe I need to step up my game in order to sort of like be okay when I face God. Jesus rendered the enemy inoperable, powerless over us. You see, when you take away the enemy's main tool, namely sin and the judgment upon sin, when he became the, when he judged sin on the cross, the enemy no longer has that tool to use against us. He is our conquering king who conquered over our enemy, namely the devil. And lastly, we see our high priest who is able to help us. He had to be made like his brothers in every way. If Jesus is not like us, he couldn't fulfill his role as high priest because now he represents us before the Father. It was there on the cross he made atonement for his people. Look at verse 17. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Christ went to the cross to make the final complete atonement expiation for mankind's sin. See, the priest in that day carried, had a, bre a breastplate with stones of the various tribes because he carried them close to his heart. But when Jesus went to the cross for you and for me, he carried you close to his heart. The priest would offer a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. Jesus Christ offered himself to make atonement for the sins of the people. One of the disadvantages we have is that we aren't Jewish. Most of us aren't Jewish. But they knew that they needed a mediator, a high priest, to come before God to the most holy place to make that sacrifice. The role of the priest was essential in making atonement. And the role of Jesus making that atonement was essential for our salvation. So what's the point? It says... <clears throat> Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, before Jesus actually went through testing and temptation, he was untested. 
But when he went through them and did not succumb, now he's able to help those who are facing temptations. You see, you may be today needing some joy in your life because the busyness of your life, the burdens of your life have stolen away your joy. You might be needing some peace because there's an absence of peace in your soul. You might need some comfort because you're going through conflicts and cancer and grief. And you might need some love because God demonstrates his love to us in that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We see Jesus. Pray with me. Father, this incredibly rich passage in Hebrews speaks to the person of Jesus and his work for us in becoming the substitute, the sacrificial lamb, the one that John identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We are an easily distracted people. We become so focused on other things that we begin to drift. We focus on our problems, our burdens, and we do not look to the one who is our burden bearer, Jesus. Jesus, you are able to help your people if they only would humble themselves and come. So God, we want to come today and confess to you that we are unable to navigate this life by ourselves. We need a guide. And we're unable to bear these burdens by ourselves. We need a burden bearer. We need someone who's going to stand with us and for us and fight for us because you are able to help us. Jesus, would you allow us through your spirit to see you and humbly come to you and acknowledge that you are the great God who came down to earth. We pray in Jesus' name. So let's put it all together. We are all human, right? And so our Savior had to step into humanity to save us. And becoming human, he knows and understands everything about us. He totally gets us. We all suffer in our humanity. Jesus suffered and he died. His death conquered death. And we are no longer ever afraid of death. Death has been conquered in the powerful resurrection of Jesus Christ. By his death, the enemy was rendered powerless. He has no power over us. And Jesus is not ashamed of us. He is now our faithful and merciful high priest. Isn't that beautiful? Yesterday I was at South Mountain Creamery. I was with my little uh, grandson, William. And there's a cat there. His name is Pepper. And Pepper kind of frequents the place and licks the various bowls. And William was trying to convince Pepper to come over and lick his bowl. But Pepper had run away. And it occurred to me that the only way that William could communicate with Pepper is if William became a little cat. If he incarnated as a cat, Pepper would understand what he's saying. That he has some nice ice cream to eat. But because he wasn't a cat, he couldn't talk to Pepper. The only way that Jesus could do what he did was he incarnated in humanity. And when he did so, he conquered your greatest enemies. So that now, brothers and sisters, you are set free. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Hebrews chapter 3. Keep reading the book. 
Auf Wiedersehen.